Now then, let's uh, turn to Daniel chapter 2 again. On page 1020 in the Church Bible, Daniel chapter 2. And in verse 31, at the beginning of the verse, Daniel says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. Behold, a great image. Now, as I mentioned before the reading, we began looking at the events of this chapter last Lord's Day. And... uh, We saw how Nebuchadnezzar dreamed that dream, and he knew himself it was unusual, and he didn't understand its meaning, but he didn't have confidence that his advisors, the kind of druidic priestly caste of the Chaldeans, he didn't have any confidence that they could explain the dream to him either, so he didn't tell them the dream. If they really had the powers that they claim to have, then he says, tell me the dream, and then I'll know that you can actually interpret it. And of course, they can't do that. And the result is that the king, uh, tyrant as he is, decides that they should be executed. And the execution of the top level of government actually catches Daniel and his friends in it too, because although very young and from a foreign country, they have been promoted very, very quickly into the top layer of government. But Daniel, of course, and his friends, as you'll remember, held a prayer meeting. And uh, God, you'll remember, had gifted Daniel as a reward for his obedience as a young man. He had gifted him with the power of interpretation of dreams from God because God would periodically communicate that way. And they recognized that this may be God's call upon them, and they prayed, and sure enough, God revealed the dream to Daniel and its interpretation. And we left off last Lord's Day with Daniel uh, being brought into the king's presence. And as we read in the chapter, he begins to tell the king the dream, and he gives the interpretation. And of course, at the heart of the dream is this great image. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, whose splendor was excellent, and its form awesome. It is, of course, the image of a man. And I'd like to look with you at three things. First of all, the composition of the image. What is it made of? And what do these substances represent? Second, its appearance. Uh, What is the effect of its appearance, particularly on those who see it? And last of all, its duration. So the composition, the appearance, and the duration. So let's begin with the composition. It is a man in the form of a man, I should say, but it's made up of four parts, or five if you like, depending how you count them. And these different parts um, are made up of different materials. The head of the image is made of fine gold, 
Then the chest and the arms are made of silver. The belly, the stomach area, the loins and the thighs are made of bronze. And last of all, the legs are made of iron. But the feet of the legs are actually composed of a strange mixture of iron and ceramic clay. So there's obviously, as we'll see, a kind of weakness setting into the fourth kingdom. Now Daniel tells us what the substances represent. He tells us very plainly that they represent four distinct kingdoms. Now Daniel himself doesn't say what these kingdoms are, with the exception of the first one. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Now, obviously, Nebuchadnezzar there represents the kingdom of Babylon. So sometimes the king is spoken of, at other times it is the kingdom. Does it matter? The kingdom and the king are one. So the only one that Daniel actually identifies is Babylon. But history, of course, reveals what the next kingdoms are. And all Bible scholars really are pretty much agreed what the other kingdoms represent. I say almost because there are still some who refuse to accept it. Um, As we'll see in a moment, the kingdoms are uh, Babylon, the Medo-Persian kingdom, uh, the Greek kingdom, and the Roman kingdom. There are some Bible scholars who divide the Medo-Persian kingdom into two. And so they say that the second kingdom was the kingdom of the Medes, the third, the Persians, and the fourth, Greece. Now, the reason they say that is because they they don't want to acknowledge that this book is prophetic. They, They don't really believe that Daniel actually saw into the future. So the first thing they do is scale back the time of the empire, so that the last one here is the Greek one. And then they push the date of Daniel's composition forward so that Daniel lives not too far away from the advent of the Greek kingdom. In other words, he could politically see it coming. Now, that doesn't wash. It doesn't wash in terms of the history itself, and it doesn't wash in terms of our spiritual understanding either. Uh, God knows the future, and God sometimes reveals the future to his people. And that is that. If you have a difficulty with what you call supernaturalism or the miraculous, then you have a difficulty with God, period. There's no real point in saying that you believe in God and say then that it is impossible for people to see into the future. There's no point in saying such a thing. The whole point of believing in God is that you do believe in a God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that in them is. And if he chooses to reveal, nobody can see it by their own strength, but if he chooses at various points in world history to reveal the future to his prophets, so be it. And he has, and he did, to bring his own purposes to pass. So the obvious interpretation is the true one. And that's almost always the case anyway. The obvious interpretation is the true one. In other words, the four kingdoms are these. And by the way, Daniel 7 makes this even more clear. 
And it would be useful, just by the way, to look at Daniel 7 and Daniel 2 together because they're quite similar. In chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision of four beasts which correspond to these four metallic parts, but it would be too complicated. I suppose it's a little complicated as it is, but it would be too complicated to take the two chapters together. So let's leave seven out of view just now. The kingdoms are these. First, the kingdom of Babylon, which reached its zenith under King Nebuchadnezzar. That is the kingdom of gold. The second kingdom is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. That is one kingdom, not two. It was always considered historically one kingdom and not two. In fact, you'll remember that the book of Daniel refers to the laws of the Medes and the Persians. It's as though God had stuck these words in there just to prevent us dividing that empire into two. It's one. The kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, and that reached its pinnacle, I would guess, under King Artaxerxes. The third kingdom that arises after that is the kingdom of Greece. And that, of course, came to its pinnacle under Alexander the Great when he um, conquered India He wept, still in his 20s, because there was nothing left for him to do. Quite astonishing. The fourth kingdom that arises is, of course, the powerful Iron Kingdom of Rome. You'll notice that this kingdom is the last one. There is a sense in which it has no successor. It moves into ten toes, but it's not itself followed by another kingdom of the same kind. So whatever these kingdoms represent, they finish with Rome itself. So that's the composition or the statue. Now, in a bit more detail, I want us to look at its appearance. Well, the first thing that strikes you about it is that it's in the form of a man. Now, I think that obviously relates to the fact that these kingdoms are all human kingdoms. Now, of course, right away, that puts a difference between them, on the one hand, and the stone that mysteriously appears almost from nowhere to smash these statues, the statue, a stone which itself grows to become a mountain filling the entire earth. That stone is extraterrestrial, really. That stone is from outside. It's from another kingdom. It's from another world. But these kingdoms are all in the form of a man. They are human kingdoms. Now, by human kingdoms, I don't just mean that these kingdoms are designed and built by men. I mean that they're designed and built for Men. In other words, they have man somehow at their heart. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, even in the form that Rome continues, revolves around man. Founded on humanistic wisdom, they're established by humanistic power, governed by humanistic laws, and they're characterized or express themselves in humanistic culture. 
In other words, they are all humanistic civilizations. Now that, I suppose, is the real reason I began the study on Daniel with a couple of sermons on the Tower of Babel. Because the Tower of Babel, you'll remember, is still at the heart of this city. Nebuchadnezzar effectively rebuilt it. Uh, pretty much every brick found in ancient Babylon has been stamped with Nebuchadnezzar's name. He obviously thought a lot of himself. And the spirit of Babel is at the heart of Babylon. It always is. The spirit of Babel is at the heart of Babylon. And you'll remember what the spirit of Babel was. Under the leadership of Nimrod, the whole earth was of one lip and one language, one speech. In other words, they spoke the same language and they, they had the same ideas. And these ideas were man-centered. When they came to the plain of Shinar, they said, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build a city and a tower whose top reaches into the heavens, lest we be scattered abroad. So there was this demand for centralization, for a, a great ruler, and for man to be at the heart of the civilization, man at the heart of the city, a man-centered city, and a man-centered tower. And even if Babel or Babylon develops its religion, it'll still be a humanistic religion, somehow or other, even when man makes space for the gods, it will be in such a way that will elevate himself. Now, that reminds us that the essence of Babel and Babylon is humanism. And humanism is essentially the idea that it's all about us. If theism is the idea that it's fundamentally about God, humanism is the idea that it's fundamentally about us. Man is the measure of all things. And therefore, it is fundamentally rationalistic. It is the mind of man and the reason of man that is the measure of all things. Now, I want you to notice that this composite statue, uh, picturing four kingdoms, has a humanistic or a man-centered spirit running right through it, so that each successive kingdom is man-built, man-centered. Man-governed, man-exalting. These kingdoms are not concerned that Christ should have the preeminence, not at all, but that man should have the preeminence. And although one kingdom gives way to another, the spirit remains the same. The new boss will always be the same as the old boss. It's a bit like our political parties. Um, they're hard to distinguish from each other but they are all essentially humanistic. That's quite evident. It's increasingly evident. Um, it's amazing that most of them have had overtly Christian principles behind their founding, but they have all become humanistic. And uh, that's why, really, we're to see Babylon here as not just the first kingdom in the point of time, but it's also the guiding spirit behind the rest. The head somehow animates each successive kingdom. If you'll pardon the analogy in a way because it seems a little incongruous, but it's still useful, it's a little like the church itself. In all successive ages and everywhere, 
as Paul describes it as a living body. It is the head, the Lord Jesus Christ, that animates it. Every single part of the body, and you're all a part if you are if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're converted. If you're born again, you are part of the mystical body of Christ. You, you may have the dignity of an eye or maybe the relative small position of a little finger, but it doesn't matter. As Paul says, you are all part of the body. But the body is animated by the head. Christ, the head, directs and animates the body. Now, the same is true with respect to these successive kingdoms. It is Babylon that guides. It is Babylon that gives the impetus. So the foundation principles behind Babylon and the Tower of Babel are the ones that course through the veins of Persia, Greece, and Rome in all its forms. Humanism animates the entire body. And uh, that's why, as I mentioned before, humanism is the original idolatry. It's the one that you're guilty of. Um, if, if you're not a Christian today, you are an idolater. And I don't mean to insult you by saying that. I, I just mean to speak fact. That's all. You worship something because you were made to. And normally what we worship is ourselves. We serve ourselves. We put our own ideas before God's, our own laws before God's. We do what we want. Isn't that maybe what guides you? The world is quite overt about it. I mean, the Western world today, they'll say, well, we must have freedom to do what we want. Is that not what's behind all this transgender issue? Uh, which mystifies most people if they were to tell the truth. When they're being interviewed to give their opinion on TV, they fall into party lines. But um, ask them in a quiet room, listen, what do you really think about this? And they'll think it's mad. Why? Because it is mad that you will pay thousands and thousands of pounds to allow an eight-year-old to convert from being a boy to a girl. Uh, why? Because they want to, you see. They want to. I heard a discussion on it recently on the television, and that's really what it came down to. That was the trump card, you see. They want to. All right. There's many things children want to do. Most of the time, we have the sense not to allow it. But increasingly, no, you see, that trumps everything. They want to. But that's no surprise, because that's perhaps how you live your life. You live it the way you want to. That's humanism. That's idolatry. The idolatry of man. That's the spirit of Babylon. And that's why when the whole anti-Christian system is finally dealt with by God in the book of Revelation. What name does it wear? Babylon. Babylon the Great is fallen. The vast anti-Christian system that somehow serves man. So that's the first thing about this image. It is in the form of a man. So watch for kingdoms that have man at the center, political parties that have man at the center, and so on. Uh, watch any ism feminism, humanism, any ism you like, watch them. Don't identify too closely with any of them. Just be a Christian, that's all. The second aspect of this image that is interesting is its appearance. In other words, its impressive form. Sorry, the second aspect of its appearance that's interesting is its impressive form. 
And it's impressive in two respects. First of all, we're told at the end of verse 31 that its form was awesome. If you read the second half of verse 31, you'll discover that there are two details highlighted. Its splendor is excellent, and then its form is awesome. Now, let's begin with the awesome form. Awesome means producing fear. So when you look at the, the statue, when you look at the kingdoms, uh, you are impressed with an impression that produces fear in you. I think this is a reminder that humanistic kingdoms, which strive for a kind of utopia on this earth, always end up producing tyrannies. Because when God is abstracted, when he's removed, and man becomes powerful, he becomes very powerful, and he becomes tyrannical. It's an awful thing to be subject to anybody who's not subject to somebody, who isn't subject to somebody else. Um, when the Bible says that a wife is to be um, subject to her husband in terms of authority, it's a great comfort to her to know that her husband is accountable to God and sees himself accountable to God and knows that he has to be obedient to God. And that that involves loving his wife and honoring his wife and self-denying for his wife. If she was to be subject to a husband who wasn't accountable to anybody, but who would live life according to his own dictates and his own understanding and his own whims and his desires, how terrible a thing that would be. In other words, you always want somebody in authority over you who is himself subject to a higher authority. Uh, that's why power, crazy people are always dangerous. And that's one of the problems with our political system. You see, our rulers are not actually accountable. Um, what a difference it would make if they were accountable to God. I mean, they do call themselves accountable to the electorate, but you know what that means, really. If they were accountable to God, what a difference it would actually make. If they all thought, right... From our prime minister and our first minister through to their cabinets and every MP and every MSP, if they thought themselves to be accountable to God for how they ruled, for the decisions they made and the laws they passed, you would feel a lot more comfortable. Instead, they are a law to themselves. Even when they consult you, it's only to find a mechanism by which they can do their own will. And of course, when man builds his kingdoms, and God is progressively reduced and eventually expelled from these kingdoms, you have Maoism in China. You have the National Socialism of Hitler. You have the radical communism of Stalin. You have people butchered and massacred because humanism will use force eventually to create the kind of society that it wants in your name. And if you look at history and the history of political philosophy, it's quite interesting, really, that when God is left out, man is elevated. But there's a recognition that man has a problem and that he must be modified. On the right wing, that has resulted in eugenics, the development of a master race. 
On the left wing, there's been what was called a desire to create a new man. Notice the terminology, by the way, if you know your Bible very well. The desire to create a new man. A man who will be, well, let me read. I was reading around these things and came across this reference to the Communist Party Congress of 1961. I thought I would read this to you. And in this Congress of the Communist Party, there was the recognition, you see, that simply adopting Marxist principles was not going to be enough. We regard the education of the new man as the most difficult task in reshaping society. Until we remove all bourgeois moral principles, roots and all, and train men in the spirit of true communist morality, renewing them spiritually and morally, it will not be possible to build a true communist society. The result, brainwashing, the gulags, liquidation. Note the new man. You'll recognize, as I said, the terminology The Bible, too, teaches that there's a certain greatness attached to humanity. The Bible, too, teaches that there's a fundamental flaw running through humanity. And that's humanity's love of sin and alienation from God. How important to recognize the real problem before we try to cure it. So the Bible, too, speaks of the need to have a new man or a new woman. We need to be cleansed from sin and the spirit of rebellion. We need to come back to our Father in heaven, to our Creator. And by becoming new men, new women, by a new creation, we will be what we were supposed to be. How does that process begin? You must be born again. That's what makes you a new man or a new woman. If you haven't been born again, you'll never be a new man or a new woman. And then you grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. The letter to the Ephesians has an extended kind of explanation of it. In chapter 2, he says, you've been quickened. You've been brought to life. But you're still children. You need to grow into the image of the Christ who has renewed you. So he says, put off the old man and be renewed in the spirit of your minds through the word of truth and put on the new man which is in the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice that? Do you notice, in a way, how like the Communist Party Congress statement of 1961 it was? That reminds you that although the devil is a liar, the lie that he specializes in is counterfeit. Counterfeit. He's never a million miles from the truth. So the appearance of this statue produces awe, fear. Humanism will become tyrannical. It always does. The second effect of the statue is to produce wonder. We're told not just that its form was awesome, but that its splendor was excellent. In Revelation, the whole world wondered after the beast wondered after the beast. 
Here, the statue dazzles. Now, human kingdoms and human societies have the power to dazzle in different ways. Babylon uh, shimmered with gold because of its opulence. Rome, um, just a relentless iron power. Uh, Somebody, an ancient historian once said that Rome created a desert and called it peace. Rome was more organized, more advanced. But even when the statue is just a mingling of iron and clay, still has the power to dazzle. And so it will. The kingdoms of this world will have the power to dazzle right to the end in Daniel 12, when we're told that travel will increase and knowledge will increase. Now, um, the things that enchant people before they become Christians are things that man achieves. I spoke in the prayer meeting recently about being fascinated by the gospel and being fascinated by other things. If you've been awed by God, it's not easy to be awed by man. If you've been dazzled by the gospel and by that story, it's not so easy to be dazzled by the kingdoms of man. But man is in awe of himself, fundamentally. Breaking Olympic records. Building another building that's taller than the buildings we've seen before. And what goes on in them is more amazing restaurants at the top or what have you, swimming pools. Wasn't this wonderful? Putting a, a, a spaceship deeper into space. And man is credited with all these things, and not God. I remember uh, when I was a young boy, and uh, well, maybe a teenager, and first computers began to appear, uh, at least in our part of the world. Um, I remember being in a room where three people were speaking and uh, one had a computer and uh, said, this is, a, this is an amazing thing. And the other person said, well, actually the man who made it must be more amazing. And the third person said, what about the person who made the man? Mustn't he be more amazing still? But we stop at the man We need to get to God. Let me be honest and say that, speaking for myself, I'm only relatively impressed with anything. Only relatively impressed with anything that man makes. It's hard to be all agog at the Fourth Road Bridge when I believe in one who holds the rings of Saturn in place by the word of his power. It's, it's really hard to be fascinated by any story that human beings make when I have the gospel story in front of me, and it's enchanted me and fascinated me, that God contracted himself to human dimensions, that he incarnated in order to seek and save that which was lost. When I have that canvas that's painted by God, it's, it's hard just to be dizzy about the works of men and women. I suppose the impression of this statue uh, leaves you in a way with a question. I mean, if the statue produces fear and it produces wonder, 
If the kingdoms of this world produce fear and they produce wonder, human achievement and so on, what effect does God have upon you? What produces awe in you? What produces genuine fear in you? What produces wonder in you? If you are a Christian, you are in wonder at God and what God has done and the gospel and its outworking. That is what holds you in awe. Now, by that I don't mean, and it would push it too far to make me mean, that we can't admire anything that's done. Because, after all, the creative abilities with which we're endowed, we've been endowed with them by God, the ultimate creator. That's true. But it's all relative. And, of course, with humanism, there is a super-optimism about what we're going to achieve one day. On the macroscopic level, there's the slow and steady conquest of space. We're getting there. On the microscopic level, there's the conquest of the human gene. And that means that we'll be able to shape our destiny absolutely, creating a superman and a superwoman. And our quest for immortality takes huge strides forward. Humanistic kingdoms, fear and wonder. I don't know if you're uh, dazzled by these things. You remember when Jesus was um, in the desert being tempted by the devil. Um, The devil's objective, of course, was to deflect him from his path. And any way will do. Still will. It doesn't matter what way. He can turn you into a... um, an ultra-religious person that whips yourself to be better or just into a libertine. He doesn't care. Either way, he wins. But in the desert, he was tempting the Lord to cast off his allegiance to his Father. And one of the temptations was this. All these kingdoms of the world and their glory I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Their glory. What do they dazzle with? Well, their ability to satisfy the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. That's what they're built on. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Of course, the Lord is not fooled by that. Away from me, Satan. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And of course, in so doing, he received the kingdoms of the world in God's way, not in the devil's way. You too can attain real immortality. You too can be a new man or a new woman if you do it God's way, if you do it by serving him, if you do it by renouncing yourself and renouncing humanism and coming to your creator and your father. And when you do, you will be what you're supposed to be. And the kingdoms that we will build then and the cities and the communities will be very different from the ones that we live in now. Last of all, and briefly, the duration of these kingdoms. Daniel himself lived to see the transition from the first to the second. It was a strange providence uh, because we'll see it in chapter 5, but as an old man, well up in his 80s, He was pretty much out of favor, or he was off the scene, until the very night that the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians was established, when Babylon was invaded um, 
that very evening, Daniel was brought back into power, and it so happened that he was pretty much the person that was chosen to effect the transition from the one kingdom to the other. That was God's doing, an amazing providence. Um, but history records the duration of all these kingdoms. And I just want to note a couple of things quickly. The first thing is that each kingdom is finite. Babylon was approximately 70 years. The kingdom of Persia, approximately 200. Greece, 130. Uh, Rome is a little different. We'll see last, next time why. Their dominion is appointed by God. In verse 21 here, Daniel says, he changes he changes. Well, back to verse 20. Blessed be the name of God. Wisdom and might are his. And he changes times and seasons. And listen to this. He removes kings and raises up kings. And in verse 36, he tells, uh, verse 37, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. Now, what a thought that is, that in some mysterious way, it is the king of heaven who puts kings in place and removes them, sometimes to be a blessing, sometimes to inflict chastisement. Did God not say to Pharaoh, the Pharaoh who was drowned at the Exodus, for this purpose I have raised you up, that my power may be shown in you? What that meant was that God used that man's wickedness he allowed him to rise to the top by God's ultimate appointment in order that God may make his own greater power manifest through him. He didn't make him a sinner. He didn't make him any more evil than he was. But he took him into his place to achieve his own purposes. God never authors evil, but he knows how to use it. It's interesting, too, that the Bible teaches that when rulers are appointed, our default position as Christians is to be subject to them, unless they require of us that which is against God's will. The powers that be are ordained of God, and we are, where possible, to honor them. That is our default position, although the Bible limits that. But this is God's sovereignty. He raises up and he casts another down. That should always give us cause to reflect. Our leaders, who are they? Our leaders, what do they believe? Who are the leaders of our political parties? What do they themselves espouse? And we need to ask God, why? Why do we have such leaders? What are you telling us by giving us such leaders? Are we asking these questions? He appoints them. But of course, the supreme reminder about duration is that all these kingdoms are obliterated when they are struck by a stone. Now, when they're struck and how they're struck, next time. But for now, the point is that they are all finite. They're doomed to oblivion. The psalm that, stand, that stands at the head of the Psalter is Psalm 1, reminding us about what endures and what passes away. God's people, like his kingdom, are trees established and fruitful. But the ungodly, the unbelievers, are like chaff that the wind drives to and fro. And you'll notice this image is just exploded 
and it becomes like chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carries them away and no trace of them is found and that's because they're ungodly. That's how we measure the glory of a kingdom. It's godliness. That's how we measure the glory of a queen or the glory of a king. Their godliness, their willingness to implement the law of God, these are exploded, as are the people who serve them. If you are in awe of the world, if you're a slave to the world, if you love humanism and if you love humanistic kingdoms, you'll be destroyed with them into oblivion. Only the Lord and his kingdom removes, remains forevermore. There's something about a, a picture like this that we really need to take to heart. This statue dazzles, and then it's just gone, gone. I don't know what fascinates you, but it's going to be blown into oblivion if it doesn't have God at its heart. Think on that. I mean, really, really think on that. The stone that smashes it will be our subject next Sabbath morning. May the Lord bless our thoughts. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray to recognize what will last and what doesn't. We pray to make sure that we ourselves will endure, that we become new men and new women through the new man Christ Jesus, that we might be clothed with his righteousness and infused by his grace, that we might wear his image and be what we were meant to be when we first came forth from your hand. In the image of God, in knowledge, in righteousness, and in holiness. Help us to see throughout the sweep of history how kingdoms come and go, how they rise and how they fall. And help us to note well the kingdom that remains. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing Psalm 1 in conclusion. On page 1 of your psalm book, the tune is Creator. Psalm 1, uh, selection A. 1A, blessed is the one who turns away from where the wicked walk, who does not stand in sinners' paths or sit with those who mock. Instead, he finds God's holy law, his joy and great delight. He makes the precepts of the Lord his study day and night. The result is that he prospers ever like a tree that's planted by a stream and in due season yields its fruit, its leaves are always green, not so the wicked, and their kingdoms, you can say, they are like the chaff that's blown away. They will not stand when judgment comes, or with the righteous day, will stand to sing the whole song.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.